Welcome to The Rights of Others, the podcast where we explore corporate human rights abuses, the misuse of corporate power, and efforts to seek accountability, transparency, and redress for victims of such abuses. We do so through a conversation with those who have devoted their lives to fighting for and defending the rights of others, talking about what they are working on, how and why they have chose to pursue this fight against corporate injustice. Today, we have Meghna Abraham. Meghna is a lawyer who worked on human rights issues for close to two decades. She is an accomplished investigator, policy expert, advocate, campaigner, and trainer. She currently works as an international human rights consultant and as an interim Asia-Pacific director at the Natural Resource Governance Institute. She's worked in Amnesty International. I mean, prior to joining Amnesty International, Meghna worked for international human rights NGOs and academic centers in India and Switzerland. This podcast uh, was really refreshing. And uh, this podcast was one of the first one we did in lockdown. So now you will hear from all of us telling where we are. Starting from myself, Olga, Seema, and then Meghna. Thank you so much for joining us today. So yeah, so I'm speaking from New Cross. It's pretty close to the University of Greenwich. It's been six weeks now. I'm kind of sometimes losing my sanity and then gaining it back. So, But still, I love it that we managed to do this podcast because that's definitely one anchor right into the real world. So I'm really happy and welcome. Yes, Tamba, welcoming you from um, Greenwich, East Greenwich, also very close to the university, where I have been six weeks in lockdown, uh, homeschooling a six-year-old, uh, very active boy with uh, a partner that works absolute full-time, meaning all the hours of the of the day. And that's a very, um, uh, an article that got a lot of traction last week said, I feel like a 1950s housewife. Seema, where are you? So thanks for joining us on the podcast. I'm also uh, joining from my home, which is also in Greenwich, in West Greenwich. Um, And I have to say six weeks in from this uh, experience, I am really grateful that we have the internet. And even with a few blips, it still does the job. Uh, and I'm grateful that uh, we still have some of our sense of humor. <laughs> we have sense of our, and some of our global perspective, even though we are living in a very insular way right now. Thanks, thanks very much. I'm uh, so it seems like I'm the only one who's living in the north of London. So I'm, <laughs> I live in northeast London, and I have been in lockdown for almost eight weeks. It will be eight weeks next week because I stopped isolated a week and a bit in advance because I had a cough and some other symptoms, which God knows what it was. So it's been a long time. And yeah, I think uh, Olga and Siva is fascinating how your answers are also demonstrating what issue we didn't cover, but obviously it's sort of the gendered impact of the lockdown. But yeah, we're all obviously extremely privileged that we have this internet and very lucky um, in this context. Magna, thank you for joining us, Olga, Raza, and myself on the Rights of Others podcast. It is such a privilege to have this discussion with your high caliber of human rights expertise. 
So with that, let's get started. What are you working on at the moment? Thank you, Seema. Thank you very much for inviting me um, and to Olga and Raza as well. It's fantastic to be on the podcast um, and to talk to all three of you. So I'm at the moment working in sort of two capacities. I'm an interim director and I manage the Asia Pacific work at the Natural Resource Governance Institute. And I'm also working more generally as an international human rights consultant for other NGOs. So I'll start with what I'm focusing on in my role at the Natural Resource Governance Institute. We are really grappling with the impact that the COVID-19 outbreak is having on the issues that we're working on, which look at basically natural resource governance management, particularly in resource-dependent countries. And to give you a flavor of that, the first issue is just essentially the drop in prices of oil or of certain minerals and metals and the disruptions in global supply chain. What is the impact that that's having on resource-dependent countries, many of whom have already been hit by high levels of debt? Now, as countries respond to this situation and as they're hit by the economic implications of COVID, there is a real risk that they may fast-track projects um, that have significant environmental and human rights risks, that they could enter into what are called poor deals, um, that they may weaken taxes, labor, and environmental standards to attract or to retain investment. And all of this is obviously really dangerous. The other big issue is the whole issue of bailouts and other relief as we are heading into what seems to be the greater economic recession. And co most governments are looking at stimulus and other packages and companies are asking for bailouts. Now, the, the key question here is whose interests are prioritized? And if we look at oil producing countries in particular, there's a real, really big questions there for governments about, is this the time for governments to resist large bailouts and tax relief to oil companies, taking into account the, the real need for a shift in terms of climate change and energy transition? So that's the sort of package of issues I'm looking at there. And more generally, I have to say, I think I'm working on COVID-19 and inequality. Um, and I, I really feel that the COVID-19 outbreak has almost unerringly exposed the fault lines in terms of inequality in every country in the world, whether it's developing or developed or between developed and developing countries. I'll stop there and then if you have more questions. Interesting. Uh, a lot of what you said uh, refers to, as you said, oil producing countries and a lot of countries where sort of minerals come from, let's say, resource rich countries. Um, you know, in this period, uh, for people who are based in the UK, you know, we're talking to you, we're in London. Why, why should people care so much about these things? Uh, yeah, there's two sides to the COVID-19 impact, how I see it. In a way, you know, we're all at home, we're staying at home. People are really worried about how they are as a family in their home. Yet at the same time, COVID-19 is a global issue. You know, why are the issues that you're working on? I mean, why should we care about the impact so much in these, in these other countries when there's so many issues facing people here in the UK? Right. So I think if you look in the UK, I mean, I would say it's true for any country. And if we take the UK as an example, if we just look at sort of there's so many things we could look at in terms of the COVID-19 outbreak. But if we just separate them into two, one is just the health impact, because first of all, obviously, it is it is a disease that's having a huge impact on health. And then the other is, I think, just a very linked issue, which is your ability to shield yourself from the infections is, is very much contingent on what kind of a safety net you yourself have. So these are the sort of two sides of this equation, roughly. Um, and if we take health, I mean, it's already clear, even from the initial analysis and research that's coming out, 
that basically the disease isn't hitting people equally. Yes, everyone's at risk of infection, but we are already seeing that there are a disproportionately higher number of deaths amongst black and minority ethnic communities in the UK. And yes, there is still, there's research going on to see is this linked to genetic factors, but there are of course a high level of certain diseases that are comorbidities in these communities, such as diabetes, et cetera. But it is also undoubtedly linked to other forms of health inequalities. Um, the other one that's even clearer is there's already very clear research in the UK that people from poorer areas, the levels of deaths are much higher than from richer areas. And this reflects a lot. It reflects poor housing. It may reflect, you know, do you have to go to work? Because, it, it, you know, it, at this point, it's very clear the difference between people and their paychecks. Do you, can you survive one day without pay? Can you survive one week? Can you survive a month? Or can you survive a couple of years? So a lot of people in, the, in sort of insecure work are from poorer areas. A lot of people don't have the ability to be able to shield themselves. And, and of course, this is the UK. If you take that to a developing country, the issues get even more stark. Um, about, I think the last survey, it's about 15% of people in sub-Saharan Africa have access to even a basic facility where they can wash their hands with soap. So there's a lot to be concerned about. I mean, that that's completely clear. And of course, there's this gendered impact, which has really been further exposed, you know, as a result of the COVID-19 crisis with, you know, single uh, mothers, women who are parents, uh, the whole juggling the, how, the childcare issue with schools closed, um, you know, this inequality, it is really obvious and it is also very concerning that um, moving forward from here, so many NGOs, civil society, human rights activists are calling for the need for a green recovery, yet there's a lot of concern that it won't be a green recovery. And you're essentially suggesting that there is concern that, you know, there will be a rush afterwards, you know, by the richest countries to get back on their feet, make money. Why is it so difficult, right? To get the, I guess, the just response, you know, to, to really for governments, for companies to really prioritize equality and human rights, uh, respect for human rights and for governments to prioritize protection for human rights. I think that's a great question, Seema. I mean, I think it's a complex answer and I can only give sort of, I guess, my partial view on it. I think it is because to a large extent, we are all sort of geared to take certain things as a given, certain kind of economic policies or others. We've really, I think, fallen into a trap where we see those as, you know, we see those as things that governments just have to do. So I think it's, for example, if you take austerity, which is without a doubt, for example, even if you take the UK, but many other countries, Policies of austerity have contributed a lot to the situation we're in right now in terms of health, in terms of many other indicators or services that are there. Adult social care is a perfect example. It's a sector that has been extremely starved of resources in the UK. And we're seeing that now in terms of the deaths in care homes, in terms of the ability of care homes to, to sort of cope with this crisis. Now, the question is, and I think this is what's fascinating now, we see that suddenly money can be made available for a lot of things. It can, it can be money put in to follow workers. There can be money put into the NHS. And I think this raises the question of uh, how many of these decisions were sort of like just based on pure economic policy thinking and how many of them are economics diluted by politics? Ultimately, these are political decisions about what governments prioritize, but they're good at, I think, telling people that no, these are just, you know, we're led by the science. We're led by, we have to do this to protect the economy. And I think what's very clear after COVID-19 is that we all have to question 
a lot of these dogmas. We have to question the things that are being presented to us as no choices. What I, Magda, I know that you are an expert on, on, and you've looked a lot into homelessness um, and the homeless and the rise of homelessness, you know, in, in various countries, including the UK. You know, I was struck, I read this article today, of course, you know, when COVID-19 was coming on, homeless people, many were moved into hotels, right? The hotels were vacant, they're housed. And people, I was reading an article just today, how, you know, people really talked about how this changed their lives, you know, allowed them to get their dignity back. You know, people were healthier eating three meals a day. They're being properly fed, properly sheltered. But of course, the main concern they were expressing was the end of when COVID-19 comes to an end. You know, will they be pushed back onto the streets? Uh, I mean, what, 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 what should we do about this particular situation? I mean, as you said, it exposes the ability to actually house people and, you know, what's needed is for a permanent arrangement to come into place. I mean, what's, what's your view on this? How could this? I, I think, I, I think, Seema, I read the same article and I think like you, I was actually struck at two levels. At one level, I did feel it was one of the few hopeful pieces that I've read in recent days, as I think is the Guardian article talking about the rehousing in London. There have been challenges in some other cities, but London seems to have had a bit more success according to that article. Um, at one level, it's shown what I think housing rights and homelessness groups have been saying for years. If there is enough political will, which also means putting in the resources, you can address the issue. But we know that it has come up and it's fantastic that it has because it is essential because the homeless um, and others living in inadequate housing are particularly vulnerable. There's, there's no way they can be shielding themselves from the infection. So it's great that it happened. I think I just want to say two things on this. One is that I think there's a real risk of saying when this is over, because this is most likely the COVID-19, the risks around the COVID-19 outbreak are not over till we have either a viable vaccine, which is being distributed, or other therapies such as, you know, some drugs that could help reduce the level of fatality or protect people. Um, and that means we're likely to be going through cycles of lockdowns. I mean, I'm not a public health expert, but just based on what public health experts are saying, we're likely to be seeing, yes, there's the lockdowns are eased, certain measures need to stay in place. Then we might see another wave of infections, et cetera. So this is likely to go on, I think, minimum a year, possibly even longer. So I think this is a perfect example. What do you do with homeless people in that context? Are they supposed, you know, if you put them out as soon as this current lockdown is eased, they're still going to be at risk. They're not in a position to protect themselves. And I think this is why we need a fundamental shift in thinking that there have to be the resources to address this problem, which is availability of housing. And that is something the activists are working on and trying to get people into more permanent housing. But a whole bunch of other services that have been cut, mental health services, support to people who have addiction issues. Yeah, and Megna, I would like to come in as well with, uh, with a particular worry that I have because First, you know, it's, it's obvious that there was um, a, a money tree somewhere. It just we didn't want to shake it enough or we had other priorities to do so. But uh, one worry that I have now is that we had advanced, especially um, in the UK and in Europe, on um, uh, socially responsible public procurement. Public buyers were actually starting to have... Uh, 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 strategies and have policies to um, investigate their own supply chains and exercise some sort of due diligence on were, were the uh, specific impacts of their purchasing 
of uh, certain products that I have experienced um, a wide uh, experience on, on the purchase, uh, public purchase of electronics, for example. But we find now that uh, governments were, uh, are more willing to spend money to procure, specifically in a, in a massive rush, to procure um, health equipment and uh, protection equipment, etc. But we are throwing to the window all the other conditions that we were putting in public procurement. We were putting a lot of conditions regarding um, social uh, um, working conditions and labor rights that uh, into our public procurement, which now we're just um, just in a in a rush to procure without even looking at what are the conditions of the people who make this. So do you think um, some of these advances that we had, both in public procurement, but in general in supply chains and developing human rights intelligence in the supply chain, are we going to see all this um, disappear from the uh, in the new developments? Olga, I think that's a great question and it's a big worry. It's definitely one I would say I share. I think what happens next is, is very contingent. And I think what not just activists do, but others in the population and everyone actually asks for in terms of government. I mean, I can't see, and I think, I think I want to be honest to say that I think there are very hard choices. If you are anyone sitting in any government right now, it is actually extremely difficult position. There are things where, you know, obviously, yeah, like the access to, for example, personal protective equipment, which, yes, should have been stockpiled because the government had plenty of warning in the past of the risk of a pandemic. It didn't happen. Now it's trying to do it, it um, very quickly. Uh, the biggest, actually, provider of a lot of the equipment is, is uh, it comes from one country in the world. Chi the Chinese are the biggest providers, exporters of a lot of this equipment. Um, I mean, there are lots of questions that, that come up. I think one is, yes, how, are you, how do you retain standards? And I think a very simple issue you could say maybe, for example, many uh, factories and workers right now are working much longer hours to try and make the equipment because the demand is so high. But yes, all right, so maybe you're relaxing standards on working hours because of the urgency of the situation. But what about, what about pay that you know, people are doing a really essential job at this time? What levels of pay do they receive? I don't see any reason why that should be off the table. Equally, um, I think there's a massive risk, as we see now, for example, the garment sector, as you know, has been very badly hit by the crisis, particularly in South and Southeast Asia. Now we see a reopening of garment factories, but already concerns are coming up about the conditions in which those workers are operating. And we could end up in this, in this very real risk that the people who are producing the stuff to protect others in particularly, well, even in their own countries who are more affluent or in developed countries are being put at high risk because they don't have any protection. They're working in really cramped spaces. So actually, I think the issue of that's an, and you can see that link very clearly. You can also see that link very clearly when you look at the situation of many essential workers in this country who are working on, you know, so cleaners, cleaners, in fact, of government facilities in this country. There are very strong allegations that have come out in the last couple of weeks that they are working on completely insecure contracts where they can't afford to take time off, even if they're sick, because they would only get statutory sick pay and that they lack personal protective equipment. So what, you know, I think at every level, these issues are key, but I absolutely agree with you that if we don't, if we don't push for these standards, they will be weakened. And then I want to flag another big uh, bogey that I think is coming up and it might look like it's too far away, but there's also a real risk that this crisis will be used to push through more automation in certain sectors as a way to manage the supply chain problems. And that's going to bring even more implications for workers in those sectors. It's fascinating. Thank you so much, Magna. This is uh, real um, issues we're grappling with in, uh, in the 
business and human rights communities and in the international um, human rights communities. And uh, I would like to take this opportunity that we got to this point of the conversation to actually um, ask you a little bit more about yourself. You know, as you, uh, how did you get here? How did this all begin? How, how did you start working for the rights of others? Olga, that's a great question. Um, and I might, I might say it's actually a, sort of only half as a joke. It's often one that my therapist asks me quite often because she thinks um, there's something definitely has gone wrong in my life in this way. Uh, <laughs> I suspect that many of us get asked that. I don't, honestly, I, I, I have to say that I was always interested. I, I went, I was lucky enough, fortunate enough and very privileged enough to go to a law school, which had a very strong social justice bent in, in India, in Bangalore. And I was lucky enough from the very first year of my law school to be involved in actually social justice, human rights issues. So that's, I was very interested in them. I was very drawn by them. Uh, and that's what I've always done. Um, I was a bit lucky, I, I think, in the sense that I actually found other areas boring. Like I have to say, the first time I had company law, I was bored out of my skull. Um, so it's a bit of a problem when people like Seema dragged me into working on business and human rights issues because and I've had to, I've had to try and remember some of those skills. But yeah, I've always been interested in, I think I'm attracted by problem solving. I think I see the injustice of things. I want to be part of the solution. So it's what I've always done. Um, I think the hardest thing in my career was making the switch from working in India. I was very lucky, as I said, I, I started right from my law school, uh, first year working with amazing groups, with amazing activists. Um, and I can mention some of them if you like, there were some real influences in my life. Um, my hardest choice was actually when I decided to come abroad to do a master's degree and then to work in international human rights because I was naturally much more drawn to working at the domestic level. And for personal reasons, I had to switch to working internationally. Um, so I wanted to keep working in human rights, but still find my, myself perhaps being paid enough to manage personal and family commitments. Interesting. I, I always um, uh, tell the anecdote that there's two um, topics that I failed during my six, uh, five years law degree that I did at the University of Seville, Sevilla in Spain. I failed public international law one. And, uh, and law of contracts. So I'm now a professor of public international law. And uh, my latest work is about public procurement, which is specifically related to how to use public contracts to exercise the judges and supply chain. So um, just for the students listening, if you hate that subject, it won't escape you. You won't escape it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, one question that relates to this and actually it, it links a little bit with this um, facet uh, um, of mine of uh, being a, a lecturer and thinking of my students. When, um, when, uh, and this is something that I've uh, told before in other podcasts. When uh, I start my teachings, uh, the first year, the first day uh, of my course uh, of international human rights law. I asked the students why they're there, why are they sitting um, there in this class, why they chose it because it's an elective subject. And many of them say, because I want to be a human rights um, uh, professional. I want to be, I want to work at the UN, I get a lot, or I want to work at Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch. And uh, I want to, because I, I want to work on human rights. And I always try to see what was like, Okay, if you are sitting here and you tell me you want to be a barrister, I will tell you, finish your degree, get a good mark, and then be, uh, do your bar course. Or get, if you want to be a solicitor, get your traineeship contract. 
how do you get to be a human rights um, a professional? So this is something that uh, I, you know, I, I wanted to ask you to reflect on. Is this being a, a, someone that works for the rights of others? Is this a profession? Is this a vocation? Do you consider yourself a human rights professional, a human rights activist? I think that's a that's a great question, Olga. It's it's you. I think hit uh, a sort of big challenge that I think many of us go through. I, I would say I think of myself as both, and I don't see them as incompatible. I see them as actually mutually reinforcing. So I do see myself. I think core to my identity is that I am an activist. I'm doing it because I I firmly, strongly am driven and motivated by 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 the by wanting change by by seeing people whose lives are affected in, in that sense, seeing myself as privileged as working with those people and hopefully helping find a solution that can bring a difference to their lives. But I'm doing it using professional skills. So legal and policy analysis, investigations, et cetera. Um, and I think, I think this is key. Um, I mean, personally, I, I have to say I can be quite discouraging. I've been asked to give a few career talks at universities and I'm often quite discouraging to students who say they want to work in, in these sectors. I say two things. One is, I think it's very important that you go into it with your eyes wide open because it is a tough sector. Um, there's a lot of, um, there's, you, you do great work. I think, uh, at least in my experience, I have never woken up one day in my life and wondered why I do the work I do, but I would be the first person to say that there are lots of problems with the management of the sector, um, that it isn't the best managed sector, that it is extremely difficult. It takes a huge toll on you. And you also have to get used to not being paid as much as all your other classmates who took other professional routes. So I would say think hard and do you want to do this? And also I think there are ways in which you may not be working at Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch or any other NGO and you could still make a big difference um, in terms of human rights. Yes, it's very it's very interesting when you say you've had, you've had um, a couple of... Uh, talks about future uh, you end up <laughs> discouraging people to take this path i have uh, that very often when i have students that come to say i would like to do a phd because i want to be a university lecturer and i say don't go out in the world and find out what what, what the world is before you get yourself into this kind of environment which is at the same time you know very enjoyable because you work on what you in principle want but at the same time has the same uh or you know parallel um management issues and uh, and issues related to how the sector is actually organized and i think sima as well can probably say a lot about this <laughs> but um yeah but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll let her talk now i mean interesting because i I mean, we don't want to dissuade people massively from being ultimately what is important, which is a human rights activist, right? So, I mean, Olga, we have worked together across in this corporate accountability business and human rights space, uh, me from the NGO sector and you as an academic, we can definitely, there are clearly uh, struggles Magna, you and I have spent a long time working together at Amnesty International. We've done some, I would say, breaking work around uh, documenting labor abuses on Palmo plantations. And, and, and you, in fact, tracing with certainty the supply chain to many of the world's biggest brands. Great stuff around cobalt. I mean, this work is important. I mean, the question I have is that you don't need to be in the profession, a professional human rights 
person to basically, you know, impact on this space. What we need to have is people who are in fact in industry and in government, basically, even if it's not their full-time job, becoming human rights activists and pushing companies to be more responsible, governments to like be more robust in their policies. Magna, if you were not professionally in this space, my question is, if you were working at, dare I say, Nestle, how would you act and show that you are a human rights activist? No offense to Nestle, of course. Thanks, Seema. That's a, that's a great and a very tricky question. And uh, um, well, of course, I'd be very happy, I'm sure, to be based out of Switzerland working in Nestle. Uh, it's quite a nice, I understand, uh, location where they're based. But um, I think for me, if you're in Nestle right now or in any other such large multinational, you have a big you have a massive opportunity to influence what's going to come. The world is about, we have a warning from the UN that we are basically reaching, I, I believe in the discussion of the, the UN Security Council, it was even called famines of biblical proportions. There is a massive risk of increased food insecurity in the world today. And I think actually large multinational companies who are in this space will have a big role to play in terms of what happens. Can they keep can they try and keep the, the food supply chain going in a way which is really going to benefit both farmers and small uh, smallholders and others in the sector? Can they also ensure that the things work enough that everyone has food to eat? So if you're in Nestle, the decisions you're going to be making about your supply chain, um, about how your operations are run, are going to have a massive impact. And I think you can absolutely be an activist in that context. In fact, you might have the opportunity to have a greater change than some of those of us who are asking Nestle from the outside. But I think what I want to be clear on that is it can't be cosmetic change. It can't be writing a nice policy document. Um, I'm not the big, I think it's great that companies have the policies, but we know that implementation requires something more. And that's, uh, I think, again, like with governments, it's, it's a real change of it's a change of focus. So if you're going to do it, I think you should be doing it, but you have to push for the harder conversations and you have to push for those harder changes on looking, really looking into your supply chain and not just doing a sort of superficial analysis of the impacts it's having. I should also say, I don't want to discourage people. I think it's great that, you know, if someone, a young person wants to come in, all I want is for them to A, be aware of what they're getting into. Um, because I think people see the more glamorous side of the work of the working at the UN and at a large international human rights NGO. So I think have be you know go into it with the eyes open. The second thing I would say is that I I actually really encourage people to work locally before you go work internationally. And that doesn't mean you have to go work in the global south. It means you can go work with groups, fantastic groups in the UK who are working with women in extremely inadequate housing and with refugees and migrants. So Meghna, uh, my question would would be towards the uh, FMCG uh, counterpart giants, which are tech companies. And so Google have recently developed um, quantum supremacy, which means that that they can now easily achieve automation. And this just happened last November, much more easily. And quantum supremacy, if you see the Google's own video, I mean, it's, it's crazy uh, what, they, what that kind of supercomputer can do. So my question is actually because I'm talking to a lot of researchers who 
to work on these kind of issues. And he, and they say that, yeah, well, we just have a goal and we want to achieve that. What the social issues are, they're not really thinking about that. And they say, oh yeah, tell us what could be done. So the question is that if you have thought about it, I mean, how, how do you think uh, the conversation should be with these uh, tech people uh, around these issues on automation? Because as you said uh, earlier, that it, there, there's more chance of now uh, people saying, okay, yes, please give us more automation because you know, as the period come and people would be again home and we would still need products. So, Thanks, Raza. I mean, I, I think another really important area, I, I would say I'm not an expert on, on, on tech issues, but in terms of, I think my instinctive reaction to this issue is we, we know that this is coming. There've been you know, massive reports warning about the number of jobs that are going to be lost to automation in the next even 20 to 30 years. I think that, yeah, I think you've, you've sort of hit on to me what seems like the central issue. I think people who are often involved in the development of any innovation or technology often just want to improve it as much as they can. And then it almost feels like the conversation on its use is seen as a, as, as a later conversation. And I think that order needs to be changed. Um, I mean, I, want to, I don't know if it's an appropriate analogy, but the one I often think of, for example, is plastic. I'm always fascinated that, you know, the world was allowed to like just be, be, to use plastic so widely without thinking through its disposal. And I think it's, it's something, I know they're not the same, but I think there's something about that principle of when you're going to introduce a new, whatever it is, technology, innovation, et cetera, we really, before it's marketed, before it's sold, before it's used, we need to think through the implications of it, including its recycling, et cetera, whatever the, the context might be. And I think with automation, it's absolutely key that any, any innovation in automation is directed towards addressing the world's problems, not just to making profit. So yeah, I mean, there are sectors where I think automation could be amazing. Anyone who's had to deal with manual scavenging in countries in South Asia, it'd be fantastic if we had more technology to clean sewers in a way that didn't involve people having to risk killing themselves, um, cleaning sewage, maybe some mining operations, which are really dangerous. And should be done by automation. You know, there are areas where it might make a lot of sense. But if it's just to reduce the number of people employed by any company, that's, I think, at this point is, is exactly the opposite direction of what the world needs, where particularly after the COVID outbreak, we're looking at levels of unemployment and impact on labor markets that the ILO has, according to the ILO, have never been seen since the Second World War. So I would put that conversation up front rather than as a second conversation. Thanks. So Magna, a lot has been discussed and uh, to the listener, it may seem like the world is falling apart based on the podcast and well, actually, you know, but, but we are about ultimately wanting to have change and an impact and we can see um, areas you prefer to plastics. And, and while it may have been a roundabout route to get a better action about plastics to the point where we stop producing plastics uh, and the message is there not so much about recycling it, but so much about to reduce production about it because, because of the science which shows what happens to our oceans, et cetera. Um, it's, I think there's so much to be learned from the environmental movement and, you know, particularly this narrative, for example, around plastics and the impact on oceans and sea life. 
um, impact in the human rights space. I mean, this is what is desperately needed. And you have highlighted that at this moment in time, after the COVID-19 moment passes or slowly passes, the concerns about not having a green recovery, the concerns with so much being exposed in terms of inequalities, zero-hour contracts, uh, impacts on, on workers who have no protections uh, within even the UK, and then, of course, within broader supply chains, you know, impacts and the vulnerabilities that have been exposed to people who are working in even more <laughs> dire conditions, you know, in those supply chains. Um, what, to the uh, we talked about governments, we talked about companies, they need to act responsibly. Uh, what about the average listener? What about, I mean, excellent excellent listener, the person listening to this, who wants to be uh, an activist and who wants to take action on this. And I've had discussions with friends who've always read, let's say, for example, Amnesty reports on cobalt, all very upset about the child and adult labor abuses that go into extracting it, goes into our smartphones, goes into our computers, goes into our electric vehicles. But then ask me, but Simo, what do I do? What can I do to basically affect change and this narrative? So with that difficult question, I'm going to pass it to you. What do you think can be done? I think, I think at this point, actually, I, I would almost go, and it probably sounds like a cliche, but I think that it is, I would say that there has, to me, it feels like I can't think of another point, at least in the point of times that, that, that in you know my life, where it's been more key for everyone to think about what they can do in this situation. And I would say think of it at two levels. I think for your own sanity as well. I think first is just the ways in which you can assist, and that might be quite localized. If you can think about right now, groups of people within you know just whatever your sort of circle is, who are the people who are being particularly badly hit by this outbreak? Are there ways in which you can assist them? Whether that's an elderly lady in, in your neighborhood or a food bank in your area, I think it might be nice to find a concrete way to assist because it will help you through also the uncertainty and the horrors of, of everything you're reading and everything you're seeing. So that's at a practical level. But the other level I would say is actually be political. Uh, and I would actually say that. I, I don't want to disengage from politics. I think what, as I'm saying, I think one of the main things for me is it is clear the decisions that are taken on how we respond are political decisions. There are choices. Yes, there's science, there's economics, there's many other disciplines that will come to bear. But ultimately, there are, there are political factors behind why certain decisions are made. And you need to push those in power on all of the issues that we've talked about right now. Should companies that benefit from public money right now in terms of bailout, do, should they be making a commitment to reduce their carbon emissions? Should they have to say that they're not going to be registered in any tax haven and are going to pay taxes to the country whose public resources that they're drawing on? What are their um, standards in terms of, are we going to ensure that, I mean, all the stuff that the business and human rights people have talked about for decades now, it, it can no longer be ignored. It has to be up front and center. We, you know, you have to be pushing for mandatory human rights due diligence policies to be legally enforced for companies, for their global operations and supply chains. So all of this, ultimately, we know actually the people who can make a big difference are not the activists and not the professionals and the commentators. It's, it's actually other people when they're putting pressure on the government, when they're going to make it a big political issue. Um, I think 
yeah, I think at this point, we we all have to act. And I think almost like, if, even if you leave your principle aside, if you're someone who's being really pragmatic and utilitarian, um, I think one thing I would say is that it's important that the action you push for, and this is hard at this time, isn't just about your own country, but it's international in scope. And again, that's, I know that sounds idealistic, but in a way, the sort of stark terror of this virus is it's made it very clear that no one is safe till everyone is safe. So in the action that you're taking, you need to push your government to think more broadly. You know, what's it doing about countries in the global south? What are, what's the pressure it's pushing on any company registered in the UK in terms of what its operations abroad? I know it's a lot, but I think if you just make that, for me, it feels like the shift is to say, I'm not going to sit back and do nothing. I have to act because if I don't, I think there is this, there is an opportunity and a risk in this crisis. I know that doesn't help with the optimism, but it's very clear from the analysts who are looking at it that yes, we have an opportunity here actually to rebuild in a better way in terms of climate change, in terms of redistribution, in terms of inequality. But if we don't act, there is a massive risk that things are going to go in a completely other direction, which is much more negative, more protectionism, more rise of nationalism, uh, a, a real a risk of a massive breakdown between the United States and China dragging us into another Cold War. So the actions we take in the next year, I think, are what is going to make the difference. I agree totally, Magna, and thanks so much for summing it up. Actually, this is a moment of opportunity and a moment of action, and it is very important, you know, what we all do next, and, and thank you for exposing that. My final question is, so, so what is next on your agenda, Magna? I know that you love to do pottery in your spare time. Are you, are you thinking that you're going to become a local activist and reflect it through your pottery making or some other creative activities? <laughs> See, I wish that my pottery skills were as uh, good as you think they are. Uh, I would, I do miss pottery. And I, I should say, I think, as I've, I've said all these things, I know it's hard for people. I think this level of, I mean, I think if you're a young person and I imagine in your Olga's class, you know, what you're facing with the risk of um, uh, probably what's being called the greater recession is terrifying because you don't know if there's going to be a job for you. You don't know what the future holds. You're being told that there's a risk of further pandemics. It's not easy. It's not easy for anyone right now, even privileged people. There's a lot of, still, you're grappling with uncertainty. Yes, you have privilege, so at least you're safe, but you're still grappling with these things, and it's hard. I mean, I am, I am keen to do um, more activism myself at a local level because I think it grounds people. Um, it's something, you know, I've, I've done a lot of stuff in, you know, I'm still doing lots of other things, but I would like to do that. Um, but I think, yeah, I think for me, I feel for anyone who's working in any area right now, you can't ignore COVID-19 and we're all going to have to rethink how we how we work on what's coming in the coming months and years. Thank you very much. Thanks, Magna. Thank, Thank you, you Magna. Great to have you. Bye. Bye, people. Take care, everyone. Stay safe and uh, and think and act. And to finish, and as always, we would like to remind our listeners that any mention of a specific individuals or companies as examples does not imply wrongdoing or rightdoing. We encourage the listeners to take independent steps to come to their own conclusions.
Thank you and goodbye.